You just take the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus. From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom! Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion. It's a conspiracy, I tell you. They're all working together. To raise my blood pressure! Tell me there's something better. Go ahead. Try. Welcome back to another episode of the Spectacular Radio. I'm your friendly neighborhood webmaster of spidey-dude.com, Zach Joyner. And of course, I'm always joined by the host of the show, Mr. Greg Mashansky. Hello. And of course, we're joined once again by Mr. Greg Wiseman. And I'd like to apologize for us being away for a while Life gets in the way sometimes, but here we are, and we're hoping to bring you more content throughout the year 2016. Yes. Yes, we are. We've got, what, uh, we'll have three episodes coming out pretty soon? Yes, we should. I mean, obviously the first two will be out before this one hits. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we have some fan panels that we're uh, going to produce. Actually, one should be out before this hits, and then one out after this hits. I'm, there you go. Let me correct myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Throughout, I mean, so um, we've all had a very busy year, and uh, joining us as usual is Mr. Greg Wiseman, this, the uh, story editor and supervising producer of the series. Hi. And uh, Greg, what have you been up to the last few months? It's been a while since we uh, all spoke. Well, um, I'm uh, my day job's running on a preschool show called Shimmer and Shine for Nick Jr., um, but I've been very active doing a bunch of other things as well. The main thing is that we've uh, produced and completed production on uh, the Reign of the Ghost audio play. Um, it's done. It's available now uh, on a website called Gumroad. So if you go to gumroad.com uh, slash Reign of the Ghosts, you can, it's available for download and purchase now. Um, we're still in the final process of fulfilling uh, all the rewards for the Kickstarter for Reign of the Ghost and uh, trying to get that done with all deliberate speed. Um, and uh, meanwhile, I've also been writing a couple comics for Marvel, um, Star Wars Kanan, um, issue uh, 10 comes out tomorrow, and um, Star Brand and Night Mask, issue 2, came out last week. Um, and uh, a bunch of other projects I'm also working on that I can't talk about yet, but uh, I've been very busy, actually. Well, that's good to hear. Busy's good. I look forward to hearing about those other projects you've mentioned, and I've actually been reading Star Brand and Night Mask. Well, I have the first two issues. I haven't read the second one quite yet. I've been busy myself, but the first issue was a lot of fun, and uh, one thing I couldn't help but notice, and uh, apologies, Zach, it's just a small cameo, but it's a fun cameo. Kenny Kong makes a return and is carrying a varsity jacket. It's based on the motto from Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, that's right. Kenny Kong is a regular supporting character in the Star Wars Night Mask. He's got an even bigger part in issue two. Um, and uh, yeah, he's uh, lives on the same uh, in the same dorm on the same hall, uh, Osborne Hall, fifth floor, with. Uh, um, Kevin Connor, who's Starbrand, and uh, Adam Blackvale, who's Nightmask. So uh, 
the two of them uh, live on the same floor with Kenny, and Kenny's a, a series regular in Starbrand and Night Mask. I assume Osborne Hall is named after uh, our the favorite Korean the money for it. <laughs> Isn't he a wanted criminal now in the Marvel Universe? Well, <laughs> money. Uh, no, well, he's money running around so... looking like Hush from Batman. Um, okay, I haven't read it in a while. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been reading. So. Yeah, the, the Dark Rain thing. He was exposed as a villain, and um, but hey, you donated the money. It doesn't matter what you do; they're going to name halls after you, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but and I haven't read issue two yet. I don't know if she shows up, but I heard he mentioned in an interview that Shashan shows up down the line at least. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. See, I was going to ask if anyone else would show up, but I suppose the answer to that is also no spoilers. <laughs> For those that don't already... Uh, you know, it's ESU, and uh, it's definitely Peter Parker's alma mater. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, you know, Kenny Kong, in essence, is in this new sort of reconstituted Marvel Universe that combines elements from Marvel Universe and from... Uh, the Ultimate Universe and stuff like that, uh, Kenny's sort of making his first appearance there. So, um, so there he is. He's a freshman at uh, uh, Empire State University. Which is awesome. And I, like I said, I love that he had a spectacular Spider-Man version of the varsity jacket. I mean, I would like to think that has deeper meanings, but with corporate politics and what they are, I have no idea. <laughs> and even so, you wouldn't tell us. <laughs> I have a question. Since since you're writing in the new Marvel universe, is there like a set of guidelines of, of, of what you can reference in continuity, or are they just going to let you just have at it? Well, for the most part, you know, the continuity wasn't undone. It wasn't like a reboot um, in the sort of New 52 sense, you know. Um, you know, all the history still happened. Um, even the history that had Starbright and Nightmask dying happened. Um, they're a little vague themselves on how it is that they're alive um, because there was sort of an eight-month reset button um, after uh, Battle World and uh, Secret Wars. But uh, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, the events that took place in the past no longer exist. It's not that kind of reboot. Um, it's, uh, I don't, I, I mean, I, I literally don't know what to term it. I don't know if it's a soft reboot or if it's a, but the point is, is that, you know, elements from multiple different universes got combined into the Mar the traditional Marvel universe. So all that traditional Marvel universe history still exists. Um, but there are now added elements that didn't exist before, um, and, or, uh, um, you know, the multiverse still exists in the Marvel Universe, so you can also, um, and there are certain characters like the Captain Britons and stuff like that who can jump from universe to universe. And I don't pretend to know the full depth and breadth of it all, but, um, you know, no one sort of said to me in writing Starbrand and Nightmask, um, well, you can't do that, you can't do that, or anything like that, or you can't reference this. You know, the history is the history. And that's probably the most detailed explanation I've seen <laughs> or heard. So I'm glad that that it, it 
to get a, getting an explanation from a, from a writer that's writing at Marvel now because um, I've been somewhat confused myself. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, Greg, you got any more on? Uh, not until I read the second issue. Okay. Um, uh, the uh, how has it been writing for for the Star Wars um, brand with Marvel? Is is how exciting is that for you? To also incorporate some of your own stuff, I, uh, my understanding. I haven't read it yet, but um, tell us about it's it's good. <laughs> tell us about your Star Wars work. Uh, well, you know, I I was uh, one of the executive producers and writers on the first season of uh, Star Wars Rebels, which was a blast. Um, and one of the things that we did for that show when I came aboard, the show was already created; all the lead characters existed, but most of them did not yet have backstories. So one of the things that we did when I came aboard was help create backstories for all the five lead characters, including Kanan. Um, and so it was sort of, that was great because it informed what the writers wrote, it informed how the actors performed and all sorts of stuff like that. But what was sort of sad about it is that, you know, I felt it was essential that we come up with these backstories, that we give the characters last names. When I came aboard, none of them had last names. Um, but what was sort of sad about that is that other than Ezra, there didn't seem like there was a lot of room in the show to tell those backstories. Um, you know, as I've been sort of famously told, you know, Star Wars movies don't have flashbacks per se. And so we weren't going to be like flashing back and seeing Kanan's history and that kind of thing. So when, uh, you know, some months after I left, uh, Rebels, um, probably like five, six months after I left Rebels, they called me up and said, hey, you know, how would you like to do the Kanan comic book for uh, Marvel and us? And I'm like, yeah, for sure, because, you know, finally I get a chance to do that backstory um, and tell that story. And so our first uh, five issues um, told how Kanan, uh, back when he was a young Padawan named uh, Caleb Doom, um, how he survived Order 66 and the Clone Wars and what happened immediately afterwards. And then we did a transitional issue with issue six and then seven through 11 are telling um, the story of how he became a Padawan and uh, of his first uh, battle in the Clone Wars. Um, and then issue 12 is sort of an epilogue, uh, for that. And, uh, it's been great. You know, it's been a lot of fun. Um, got to create a couple characters for the star Wars universe that are canon, which is really neat, you know, made my little contribution and got to tell uh, a handful of pretty fun stories, I think. And, um, been terrific. Oh, the book is and, and the artist on the book, Pepe Laras, um, and also our color artist, David Curiel, are both so incredible. Um, I honestly think I could write a market list, um, and the book would be fantastic because the art is so gorgeous. But uh, hopefully I'm doing a little better than a market list. <laughs> you are, and it is a beautiful-looking book, and... Uh... I don't, I don't know what's next for you there, but I would love to see a backstory comic about Hera. I love that character. 
I'd love to do Harris, Sabine, Zeb, any of those three. Um, I'm not currently scheduled to do any, um, thing more over there, but, um, you know, we all had a good time and, uh, uh, and so, you know, the door's always open if they want more. And also on that note, while we're talking about Canaan, I have to congratulate you for making the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I mean, you know, let, I, 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 people congratulate me. I always feel a little embarrassed to sort of accept that congratulations because the fact of the matter is, is that all the Star Wars trade made the New York Times bestseller list under the graphic novel category, um, which is what it is. It's not like I made the actual New York Times top 10 bestseller list in terms of all books out there, it was in a very specific category, which was graphic novels. And let's face it, anything with Star Wars on it was going to make that list. Um, I'm happy that I made it too and didn't do such a horrible job that I failed to make a list. <laughs> but the honest truth is, is that every single one of those Star Wars trades did make the list. So it would actually be embarrassing if I hadn't made it more than, uh, more than an achievement that I did. Cause it's really, again, less about me, it's more about this little property called Star Wars being kind of a big thing. So, uh, but you know, I'm very glad we made it, and and it's always nice to see. And yes, I can technically call myself a New York Times best-selling author, but we all, I think, the reality is is that there are a couple of pretty huge caveats to that statement, and I don't want to overstate what my own personal achievement really it still comes down to george lucas's achievement more than anything else <laughs> well you're more modest than many other people in that regard then <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah i mean uh, yeah <laughs> oh I, I i saw half of star wars unfortunately due to some circumstances i couldn't see the rest of star wars but uh, i enjoyed the property and i'm glad that there's a lot more star wars coming out and i'm glad that you were able to have your um, have your contributions, Greg. That's awesome. Uh, I, it's been it's been awesome reading the solicitations and seeing Greg Wiseman writing for Marvel. I just think it's that's a it's always a good thing. Totally, uh, well, it's been totally. fun. It's been a lot of fun. And again, I have a great art artistic team on uh, uh, Donald Staten and Jordan Boyd on uh, uh, Starburn Night Mask. So. Uh, it, you know, it's always great when you're working with talented people who make you look good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have a Spider-Man episode to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But it's been so long since we talked to Greg. We got we had to get some time devoted to. Um, all the all the prolific work that he's working on. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, it's it's great. Um. Anyway, this is the Uncertainty Principle. It's the uh, ninth episode of the series. I believe it's a Kevin Hopps script. And, uh, oh, I wrote down who directed it. Now I can't find it. But um, it was Dave, uh, Bullock. Dave Bullock. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's a very strong episode. And uh, before we dive into the real meat of this, I one thing I've always noticed, it's a recurring theme in your work. Halloween often pops up. You did a Gargoyles Halloween episode which uh spectacular spider-man young justice yeah i mean part of it is that um networks tend to like halloween episodes um you know uh, but part of it is is that a lot of the shows i do take place over you know a somewhat realistic time frame as opposed to just sort of generically it's always 
fall or always summer or always spring, whatever, you know. A lot of the times uh, on the shows that I produce, we sort of say, no, let's go through the seasons. Let's see, you know, let's go through the school year. Let's go through the seasons and that sort of thing. And so obviously we did that on Spectacular Spider-Man um, and it was time for a Halloween episode. Of course, who better to be the featured villain on Halloween than Green Goblin? Alan Mickens, and this is another uh, episode. I always kind of wonder, considering the timeline, if uh, Final Curtain took place on St. Patrick's Day. Again, Green Goblin. <laughs> yes. But we, but it wasn't mentioned in the episode, so probably not. But it's uh, Halloween makes a great setting, and uh, with all the jack-o'-lanterns and all the costumes. And uh, I know it's been a while, but how did it go about choosing costumes for everybody? I mean, obviously, we, don't, we know how Flash ended up with his. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so Flash and the rest of the, you know, Flash manages, Flash loses the bet to Peter, so he has to dress up as a cheerleader. So to make the best of it, he convinces the entire football team, or, or at least a huge, uh, substantial portion of it, to also dress up in cheerleader outfits. So they're all going in drag and having a good time with it and, and everything. Um, and... Uh, for the girls, uh, we were going. We were ahead of our time, I think, because um, we were going to have them uh, be zombies, actually. Um, and <laughs> and uh, our uh, we got notes saying that uh, there's no way the cheerleaders would dress as zombies because they're too looks conscious. And I was sitting there thinking, it just you know, my daughter uh, had a had dressed up when she was younger as uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Um, and that particular year, she dressed up as Zombie Belle. And I was saying, guys, you know, <laughs> nice. girls are like the zombie thing. They're like, no, no, they'd never dress up as zombies because they, you know, not the cheerleaders, you know. Um, and, of course, you know, now no one would think twice about them dressing up as zombies. In fact, if anything, they'd be like zombies, really again, more zombies, really again, you know, but I guess back in, when was it? 2008 or nine or whenever we were making this. I can't remember what year it was, the comparison. Um, um, you know, it was just before zombies sort of pop culture peaked and, and they wouldn't let us do zombies. So um, I don't remember exactly, you know, we wanted, you know, we, a lot of these girls were pretty sexy and owned it. And so, you know, we had sexy pirate and sexy vampire and sexy, uh, um, uh, you know, Glory's like, looks to me like she's dressed like Josie and the Pussycats, actually. But, uh, uh, right, I with Jeannie. Um, what'd you say? Or I Dream of Genie. That's the vibe I got. From Glory or from Sally? Oh, no, from Sally, from Sally. I, yeah, Glory. Why did I confuse them for a second there? It's the E's at the end of the name. <laughs> um, so, you know, we just did a bunch of different things where they could be teen sexy, not, you know, overtly sort of, uh, actually a lot of the costumes today are a little more flubby sexy, I'm going to say, and this was just more teen sexy kind of thing. Um, uh, considering then, some of this show's audience, perhaps for the best. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, 
I, I think that was all really nice, but we liked the zombie idea and uh, was really bothered that we weren't allowed to do it. Um, but And it just seems ironic now since zombies are so huge um, and so everywhere. I mean, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies is about to come out in the theater. <laughs> yeah. It's just sort of like... You know, uh, and we sort of knew it. I mean, even then, we knew it was on the cusp, and but we were told no, no zombies. The girls wouldn't do that. Yeah. And um, and what is so, suits now? Like Miss Martian was a zombie bride in Young Justice because by that time, yeah, zombies, great. Yeah, more zombies. Captain Marvel, <laughs> zombie, great. You know, but just a couple of years before that, they were like zombies. No, no way. So go figure. Um, and then, you know, Gwen's not in costume because she's very focused on saving uh, Harry or trying to help him, so she doesn't bother with that. And Peter, of course, doesn't have time for anything except uh, he's wearing his Spider-Man suit. Um, and what I love about that moment is, I mean, A, it's sort of great when Gwen spots Peter on the phone, or rather Spider-Man on the phone, and she's like, and he pulls his mask right off, you know, here, here's my secret identity. No, not my secret identity by hiding in plain sight like this. You'll never think I'm Spider-Man and it works. You know? <laughs> and then the second great moment is flash seeing him and goes, he looks nothing like Spider-Man, you know, um, <laughs> flash his mind. Spider-Man is this big, huge guy who's larger than life. And there's no way that Peter Parker could ever be Spider-Man. It doesn't occur to anybody. That was absolutely one of my favorite parts of that episode. Is is that Peter's wearing his Spider-Man costume and like everybody's like, "Oh, Pewdie Parker!" <laughs> amazing, fr- amazing Spider-Man is amazing. Friends, I think, had a similar moment. Though Peter did it on purpose. He wore his Spider-Man costume with one of those, with one of those cheap paper masks with a string that ties around the back of your head, and he went to a Halloween party. Yeah, I mean, I. Spider-Man's Amazing Friends was a show that was on while I was way back in the day working at DC Comics, so I never got to see it. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen one episode, the Swarm episode, which I just remember because I just remember that Swarm creature just kept saying Swarm, 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 <laughs> over and over again. Well, I mean, Swarm's all... my only real memory of the, of the show. Uh, well, all Swarm really you is. Know, that is a criticism, I should say. I just haven't seen any of it except that one episode. Well, all Swarm is is a Nazi skeleton covered to bees. So, you know. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in the Halloween episode, and it's a shame she's not here because I've heard it was one of her great contributions, is that when MJ pushes Flash away, the, his balloon boobs squeak, and uh, I've heard that was one of Chen's contributions to the show. Uh, yeah, it very well might be. I mean, it, uh, I... Uh... Which I had a better memory. I, I can't remember, but it, she was definitely there for a post. Jen, Jennifer Anderson uh, was, uh, I forget her exact title, but I think she was post production coordinator or something like that. Post production uh, assistant. Or assistant. And so she was there for all that, and um, she very well uh, may have come up with that idea, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, the little horn honk when Mary Jane pushes Flash away and pushes on his boob, and it goes, eh. Um, I love that moment too. Me too. I'm I'm a little surprised you guys got away with that. It almost emphasizes the whole thing. <laughs> um, you know, that wasn't even. No, I don't think anyone thought twice about that. Frankly, I mean, it, again, no one's 
sitting there thinking that those are real boobs that Flash has got. So uh, I don't think anyone really thought much about it. It never came up. Let me put it. I mean, it never came up as a note like, "Oh, you got to get rid of that" or anything like that. We just did it, and and people either said that's hilarious or they didn't notice or whatever. It's a small and subtle moment, but it's there, and I enjoy it. <laughs> and we also get our first look at the black cat, and it just reminds me how much I love a lot of the early cameos that you have in this show. I think the only characters who didn't appear in the first episode who didn't have early cameos are Electro and Craven, but I mean, it's a fun little moment, and uh, she's probably walking around with real loot there. At least I think that's real loot. I don't know. <laughs> well, we just, I love that idea of, you know, we're showing Black Cat, and the audience is going, well, it's Halloween, so it's some girl in a Black Cat costume, but we hadn't introduced Black Cat yet. So um, it actually was Black Cat who was using Halloween as a cover, basically walking out of the same site, and she had probably brought a bag with a dollar sign on it so that she would look like a Halloween, you know, cat burglar thief type. But yes, I, I'm pretty sure she'd just stolen a lot of money, and <laughs> that's what was in that bag of money. Was money. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, well, I, I got to say that, that I remember seeing that on the show, and I'm thinking, that's genius. And I think there may have been like a promo art some promo art for the upcoming episodes. But, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. And, you know, that causes production issues. People don't think about that. But the fact is, is that, you know, we knew Black Cat was coming, so ultimately Black Cat had to be designed anyway. And so on one level, it didn't cost us any extra money, but what it does cost is time. You know, Black Cat's episode is... Um, the next one. The next one. So suddenly we've got to have her model completed a week before we really need her, you know, not even a week, but um, really more like a month before we really need her um, in order to get it fully done and on time for the previous episode where all it is is a walk-on. So in any line, she just walks through one shot and it's over, and yet you've got to get Sean to get her completely designed and finished. And again, it was something we were going to need anyway, and it was only one episode early, you know, it causes production problems. And suddenly, just because Greg Weissman says, hey, we should put Black Hat in that. And so Kevin writes in the script and suddenly we need her a full episode early. Um, but, you know, it was the kind of show where everyone wanted to sort of do that above and beyond the call kind of work to sort of make sure that all those little treats and tidbits and stuff were in there. Easter eggs or whatever you want to call them. Well, that's one reason of many why the show is so memorable, at least to me. And uh, speaking of costumes, I suppose suppose we should talk about Harry's costume, or rather the costume Harry uh, found himself wearing, whether he meant to or or not. Because that scene at the end, I mean, we I'm, at the end was just it's one of the most chilling scenes of the entire series even knowing what's coming actually knowing what's coming makes it even more chilling but without that knowledge it's still it's it's a very sad scene i mean you don't see this often i mean it's a uh it, it's a scene where a kid is found basically on on drugs without being preachy about it like many psas in the late 80s or early 90s would do for a drug message i mean it's uh i mean granted we know what it's really motivated Norman here, but even when I watch it now, Norman, when he yells at Harry about how he could be so stupid to be using these, part of me feels that 
in spite of the fact that this benefits him, he means it. He doesn't. I don't think he wants his son to be on drugs. No, I don't think he does either. I mean, you know, and Norman isn't going to win anyone's uh, Parent of the Year award, but at the same time, he doesn't actively want his son to die. He doesn't actively want, um, you know, his son to be addicted to uh, globulin green, let alone anything else. Um, and so I think there's, uh, you know, Norman plays the cards he's dealt plays them very well. But one of the things he was dealt was a legitimate um, anger and a legitimate disgust and a legitimate concern, uh, all three for his son. Um, And, you know, and he does a good job. I mean, I I like to think, you know, spoilers here, but, you know, or at least the risk of spoilers, but, you know, we really wanted... uh, and even before anyone else was on the show except me alone, I really wanted to try and recapture the feeling that I got when I was introduced to the Green Goblin by Stan and Steve way back when, and when you didn't know who the Green Goblin was. It's trying to recreate that sense of mystery that went with the character, who's behind that mask. And that's hard to do when there's just been a major motion picture that has told the whole world including many people who haven't read the comics, that, you know, Norman Osborn is the Green Goblin. How do you make a mystery out of that? We've talked about this here before, but when the whole audience thinks they know the answer. And so we tried to build, in particular, multiple suspects, but we also tried to make the audience think that it might be Norman. Um, And... Then you see that scene in this episode where Green Goblin um, steals from Oscorp, and Norman's there. Um, and it's like, wait a minute, so maybe this isn't Norman. Uh, and then the idea, we've just been building up Harry's addiction to globulin green, and planting visual hints and stuff like that. And you come in and you see him wearing the costume, you know he's been having blackouts. And Norman has a very plausible explanation for why Harry could have done it, you know. And this was all pipe we laid, you know, the idea that Harry perceived Hammerhead and the big man as a threat, the idea that he still was angry at his father. Um, all these things could plan his subconscious that makes it relatively believable that he could be the guy. Um, to the point where even Harry isn't sure if he's the guy or not. And in fact, given all the evidence he's presented with, he kind of assumes that he must be. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, when you get, you know, in 15 episodes, the whole thing is put in a very, very different light. But right here, you put Peter in the dilemma of, does he bring in Green Goblin, who's his best friend? Um, and, you know, one of my favorite moments is Norman going, um, I'll say I was Green Goblin, and uh, and all this is my fault, and all that stuff that he says that makes him, for one, sound like a halfway decent parent, um, to the point where Spider-Man saying, no, Green Goblin disappears forever, we never see him again, he remains a mystery, and you're going to take care of Harry, and Norman says, I promise. And, you know, you go to school the next day, and Harry's off to... 
Europe, basically, to get some help with his addiction. How important was the addiction storyline to you with Harry when you were reading the Stanley, um, Stanley Ramita Senior era? Was that just one of those stories that you like? I feel like it's never been told in animated form before, and I just I, I feel like I have a story to tell with this. It's never for me about Harry has it been told before, because um, everything on one level or another has. Um, to me, it was about what's you get to the core of any character, um, whether it's Spidey himself or Aunt May, or in this case, Harry Osborne. It's like, what's the core important elements of this guy's character? And to me, one of those things was the addiction. And we weren't going to do heroin uh, on a kid's <laughs> show, or at least on a kid where a show where on kids WB. You, you, um, you didn't want your that the idea of addiction. Um, seemed important and you know the truth is is that it doesn't have to be drugs you could be addicted to gambling you could be addicted to sex you could be addicted to you know um eight million different things you know if you've got an addictive personality and you're abusing something even something worthwhile which lobulin green is not by the way but uh um you know, it can still be an addiction. So the idea of Harry having an addictive personality coming out of his background, coming out of the way he was nurtured or the lack thereof, um, just felt like it made sense. And it also, of course, you know, when things are going right, when you're developing a, a, a season or a series or something like that, everything seems to just play together like kismet. So at the same time that that was a major element of sort of, from my point of view, the archetypal Harry Osborne DNA. Um, it also helped us with creating this mystery around who's the Green Goblin. Because without the globulin green and Harry's addiction to it and the blackouts, then everyone's just sitting there going, well, obviously it's Norman, because we all know it's Norman. Um, but I think, you know, what was great about this episode is that for a large percentage of our audience, <coughs> excuse me, they came away thinking, wow, that was gutsy. They made Harry Green Goblin. Um, and that works on for a number of reasons. One, because of the work we did. It also works because there was a time in the comics when Harry was, in fact, Green Goblin. Obviously, he wasn't the first, but he was one of them over the years. So that they were saw as a choice, and there were definitely people who were outraged about it. How can you make Harry the first Green Goblin? That's yeah. outrageous. Um, but there were a lot of people who felt very satisfied by how we had played it out. And I don't think there were anyone who sat there and said, well, it's just not believable, not the way we played it out. You know, some people might have said, uh, I think they're up to something. Or Me. some people might have been angry about the choice, but none of them sort of none of the feedback I got, positive or negative, said, there's no way I believe that Harry, you know, could ever be it, the way you played it out, you know. I think that given all the hype we laid about his addiction and his blackouts and how it was changing him on the football field and how it was changing his personality and the conversations he overheard with Hammerhead and everything like that, I think... Um, 
you know, and the limp seals the deal in essence. Um, I think that that makes people believe, yeah, he could have been the guy. It could have been Elman. I didn't buy into it, but mostly because I I rewatched that scene with quote unquote Norman at Oscorp, and the guy just seemed so off walking in through the front door. He really played fair with that, and that was when I figured out because I knew Chameleon was coming next episode because he was in the slits for the next episode, and uh, I figured and because he had already shown off Black Hat, and I figured, oh, I get it. Well, you weren't supposed I mean, to figure really... out the, the the mystery before he actually revealed all the cards there. Bashansky, come on now. <laughs> I, I I remember. See, I <clears throat> I'm a child. Of, I'm a child of the '90s, and so I remember watching the '90s cartoon and and saying it was completely wrong that Hobgoblin was the Green Goblin before, <laughs> and then learning years later that it was actually beyond. Um, it was out of there. I was out of the hands of the producer because it was they were so far in production when he when he joined but i thought well that's interesting i want to see more and it, it left me definitely wanting more the the mystery of 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 harry and and the green goblin i thought it was i thought i was of the camp that was like okay huh that's different but i but i wasn't outraged did you get like hate mailers or, or uh or anything or people like, or going on. Well, it wasn't, I, I don't think we got any mail. I mean, you know, back in the eighties, we might've gotten mail, but, um, by, you know, the late aughts, uh, you know, it was more about message boards, you know, which in essence is something I inflict on myself, which I shouldn't, but the fact <laughs> is that, you know, you work through a bunch of message boards, which I did, finally stopped reading one of them i think it was uh superhero hype because it was everything was so negative week after week what was funny on one level is that the same people kept watching week after week so that they could thrill to say how horrible the show was every time um and i thought well gee if they really hated it they just stopped watching yeah um, you know uh but they seem to really at least enjoy hating it so at least they're getting something out of it i guess but it <laughs> It got, you know, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes, you know, you read someone and you read the criticism and you go, well, I don't think that's valid. And yet you could read the same guy if he's praising something. You've got to sort of remind yourself, well, you didn't respect this guy's opinion when he was criticizing you. So you really shouldn't respect his opinion when he's praising you. Well, that really just means you shouldn't be reading this stuff. Um, and... Ultimately, I uh, stopped on one of the message boards I was because everything, the tone was just so negative and hostile all the time. Though so again, they were watching every week. Um, but there was another message board that I sort of kept up with um, because it felt to me that it was more objective. What that probably just meant is, in general, people liked it better. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that I really liked what we were doing. I was very proud of the work that Vic Cook and myself and Sean and Jamie Thomason and our incredible voice cast and everything was doing. Um, and, you know, there were some people we were never going to please, people who, in particular people who had really, for whom the 90s Spider-Man show was their show their introduction to Spider-Man, their version of it. 
And we weren't trying to be like that show. We were trying to do something different. Um, and we were never going to please all those people, but I think some of them came around and some didn't. Um, Sean's art style is very unique and I suppose idiosyncratic. We thought it was perfect for what we were trying to do in particular. We wanted the Spider-Man that moves. I know we've talked about this before. Um, and that meant we needed designs that were clean and simple enough that we could really animate those designs without them going off model. And that, I think, objectively, we were more successful in accomplishing than the 90s show, which had a lot of very defined musculature and a very comic book style, which is great when they're standing still, but not so great when they're moving. Um, and that's not me criticizing the 90s show. That's me contrasting the choices that were made. And the fact is, I've watched, like Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I've seen very little of the 90s show myself because I was working in those days. I wasn't home to watch those cartoons. And when it came time to make Spectacular, I wasn't going to go back and watch these other shows, <coughs> excuse me, because that would just, you know, twist my mind around, well, that's how they did it. So am I doing it that way because they did it? Am I doing it different because I want to be different? I didn't want to think that way. So I didn't watch any of it. Um, I didn't go back. You know, the show I grew up, because I'm so damn old, is the 60s Batshoe <laughs> Spider-Man show. Um, that's what I grew up on. But I didn't go back and watch that either. Because, again, same thing. I didn't want to twist my head around either trying to do what they were doing or trying not to do what they were doing or thinking about that at all. So what I really just went back and did is read comic books, and in particular, the original um, Ditko and Lee Ramita issues from the 60s, uh, but later stuff as well, but mostly um, the classics stuff that made Spider-Man popular in the first place and try and capture that magic as opposed to try and recapture magic from this cartoon show, that cartoon show, whatever. Yeah, ironically <laughs> enough, considering what you just said, especially about Spiro Hype, I just went over there while, while you were speaking, and they had a poll, Best Spider-Man Animated Series, Spectacular One in a Landslide. Well, <laughs> so nice. there you go. <laughs> I mean, there you nice. go. Think about how ironic it is. You know, in hindsight, people look back and go, wow, yeah, that was pretty great. And I'm glad they do, believe me. But at the time, it didn't stop any of them from criticizing the show which, you know, isn't wrong. It's not that they shouldn't be criticizing the show. It's just that from the standpoint of a producer, when it gets hateful and personal and, and, and a lot of sort of bad habits that I think the Internet encourages via anonymity and, and distance and stuff like that, uh, you know, it's, it can be very hard to read when you're someone like Vic or myself or whatever who, who are really putting their heart and soul into the stuff that, they're doing for better for worse you know um our motives were pure whether the results were pure that's something else but we were trying to create something truly classic so i'm glad in hindsight people see that but at the time they did it i mean some did but a lot of people didn't well that happens and like sometimes maybe it's just best to stay off of forums like you've said because there are some people who will remain nameless. Some yes. writers out there, let's go out and get into fights with people on the internet when it comes to discussing their work. It's uh, 
Hey, I've said good, it too. I mean, I, it's lessons I've learned painfully, but you can go back and look at some of the, you know, some of the responses I gave to, there weren't message boards really in those days, but like email groups uh, about gargoyles, you know, um, or, you know, and I would get outraged and I would defend it and I would get pissed off and, and everything like that. And, you know, these are painful lessons you learn when you, join that kind of community that, you know, not everyone's interested in being polite. Not everyone's interested in having a discussion of um, things. Some people just, you know, aren't. And it doesn't help the situation to exacerbate that by running in like a, frankly, a moron and defending yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. the work either stands on its own or it doesn't. And even now, although I, God knows, I hope I've learned 90% of those lessons, every once in a while, you know, someone will, on Ask Greg or on Twitter or whatever, will say something that just pisses me off and I'll respond in kind. I try not to do that, but every once in a while it slips out and I hit send, you know, before I stop to sort of go, oh, I really shouldn't have hit send. Almost always the moment after I hit send, I know it's a mistake. <laughs> I mean, it's not like a day after, like literally a second later. I can um, personally relate. I've gotten much better about it, but I can personally relate. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, there's a former coach that gets on ESPN I mean, every time, every once in a while, when some some athlete decides to say something stupid on Twitter um, or critic, you know, gives undue criticism or something like that. He he always makes the comment, "Don't hit send, don't hit send." <laughs> Think about it before you hit send, because it's there forever. <laughs> so uh, I've done it myself. There's been some times I've had to issue some apologies and retractions, and then you feel feel like an idiot. So, and we're human. And uh, speaking of retractions or non-retractions, well, he issued a retraction a couple episodes ago. This is where Jameson's crusade against Spidey really starts. I mean, he doesn't personally hate him until season two but this is where it begins really i mean when uh when um john doesn't get any coverage and the paper doesn't sell yeah i you know we wanted jonah's uh journey to be significant and not be knee-jerk um you know this notion that he hated spider-man out of the gate when spider-man was selling papers i'm not sure that made much sense to us initially um and yet, one of the things we were able to do in this episode was showing John's very human heroics uh, as an astronaut and showing the lack of interest that the public had relative to the colorful pictures of Spider-Man fighting Green Goblin. Um, you could see how that would, at the same time, make Jameson go, fine, we're going to get Spider-Man pictures, but... I hate the guy now, you know, or at least I'm heading in that direction. And of course the threat or menace headline is one of my all time favorite. (laughs) Um, It's a classic, (laughs) you know, daily bugle headlines because it's just perfect. It's not, which is, is he a threat or a menace? You know, there's there's no good option there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Option option A and uh, one A and one B, you know? (laughs) um, So, and and by the way, gotta you know always great performances from all our actors in this show. I mean, 
Josh Labar and is hilarious in this episode. Uh, um, Vanessa is Mary Jane and, and in particular, Lacey Chabert is Gwen Stacy are terrific. Uh, you've got, um, uh, James Arnold Taylor as both Harry Osborne and, and Foswell and they're, he's great too. And, and, uh, Alan, um, as Norman is great. And of course, always Josh Keaton, but I really got to hand it to the subtle work of Darren Norris here as both. Um, John and Jonah Jameson in this episode. Darren uh, consistently on this show would blow me away um, because he could play the big, broad, cartoony character that Jonah is. And yet find those moments for Jonah where the human being comes through, where his love for his son, his concern for his son, his fears for his son um, are so raw and present at the same time, then turn around and um, by just modulating the gruffness of his voice, but otherwise not trying to change his voice in any way, play John as this sort of um, self-deprecating kind of funny uh, heroic figure. Um, You know, the kind of guy that you figure an astronaut would be. Um, and I, you know, Darren's ability to do that, and you will see it more in a later episode in season two, but in particular, but when you see John and Jonah having tons of scenes together and talking to each other, and it's all just Darren talking to Darren, but, um, uh, but the fact is, is that Darren always just sort of blows me away, um, with what he's able to do. Watching him do that in, in person at the last gathering radio play was an experience. Well, the whole thing was an experience, but he was an experience. Yeah. He's really funny. He's a really nice guy, and he's really great. I mean, you know, the notion of someone having to take on the role of Phil Hartman, um, I would think would, you know, would just be so incredibly intimidating. But the first time I heard about them doing that was when they also announced that Darren would be playing the role, and I'm sitting there going, "Yep, that's the guy to do it. You know, he can do it." Um, nice. And uh, and uh, you know, he's just so incredibly talented. I mean, he's so great in Veronica Mars and pretty much everything, but uh, not pretty much everything. He's good, great in everything, even things he's not in. But um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, uh, it's an episode like this where you see that other side of Jonah because Darren is hilarious. So he's always funny as Jonah, you know, um, yelling and bluster and all that sort of thing, but to see him do that and yet also find those moments of reality and humanity, um, and fatherhood in there. And then simultaneously have to turn around and play the son. It's always just, uh, you know, great stuff. Yeah. Something else I noticed in this episode each time I watched it, and it really stuck out here, it's very subtle. A lot of people might not have noticed it, but I think Tombstone and Hammerhead's relationship changes forever in this episode. I mean, it's very yeah, it subtle, does. but... It does, because what happens here is that um, up to this point, there's been tremendous trust between them. And then two things happen. I mean, rather, one thing happens, but it has two effects. And one is, is that um, suddenly the notion has been put into uh, Tombstone's head that Hammerhead 
potentially is a risk to him. Um, he knows so much that in theory he could be a risk. Well, simultaneously, Hammerhead realizes that he no longer has Tombstone's 100% trust. If Tombstone could believe for even a second that Hammerhead was keeping a thumb drive with uh, um, information to protect himself, you know, down the road against Tombstone, then uh, that Hammerhead has to go, well, if he believed that, what else might he believe? And at the same time, I think Tombstone fucked up, by the way, by believing it at all. Um, uh, not by rescuing Hammerhead, but by believing that Hammerhead might be guilty of this. Um, and then, so what you've got from Tombstone is this, the fact that he believed it makes him think that Hammerhead will feel like he's not trusted. And if Hammerhead feels that way, that puts a chink between us. And now I can't trust him anymore, even though he was never untrustworthy. Um, and it's this whole sort of mirrored, self-reflecting thing that creates the wedge that in season two will play out on a much larger scale. But I like to think this, I mean, I agree with you, Greg, this was definitely designed to be the first subtle um, step that showed a break into, in a relationship that up to this point had been pretty symbiotic. I love the whole, the this, this scene with, with Hammerhead and Tombstone in general uh, with, at the, at the um, steel mill. I thought that, that the, the, the colors and everything like that was just, just very rich and, and especially watching it in 1080p high definition is just gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, you know, I take no credit for any of that stuff, uh, but the fact is, is that, you know, all the molten metal and and uh, and Goblin and Spidey and Tombstone and Hammerhead running around there um, with the pumpkin bombs going off and the razor bats flying around and mm -hmm. um, Tombstone taking three to the back and just reacting like it's an annoyance. <laughs> 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 uh and uh, pulling one off, and uh, and I also love that moment where um, Spidey thanks Tombstone for saving him at one specific moment. Tombstone goes, "Well, now you owe me, and you can pay me back by doing this." Spidey's like, "Wait a minute, I've already saved your life once today. Why aren't we even?" You know, um, <laughs> but you know, from Tombstone's point of view, everyone always owes him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and uh, you know. I, Again, it's, it, you just look at the four actors there. You've got uh, DiMaggio as Hammerhead. You've got Richardson as uh, Tombstone, uh, Steve Bloom as, as Gobby, and, and uh, Josh Keaton, the amazing Josh Keaton as Spidey. And just the energy of those four back and forth and all they can do. It's just four incredibly talented guys. And so we've got incredible visuals, thanks to our great production team, but it's all brought to life also by these great actors doing just amazing stuff with, uh, with poor words that Kevin and I come up with. You know? <laughs> well, one of the things I love about your tombstone and, and uh, is that far too often on the nineties show, the Kingpin would just sit there at, at, at crime central and just kind of, you know, put his hands in clasp his hands and, you know, being like, I am evil. And this, this version of the Kingpin tombstone is, is a, 
definitely a get his hands a little dirty type of guy. And I, I, I really appreciated that he took a somewhat of an active role and is not completely passive in the way I've seen uh, other Spider-Man shows done in the past. So really well, enjoy it. I mean, again, he's a, a powerful figure. You figure that a guy, uh, particularly an African-American, particularly an albino Af- African-American who has had to come up and had to face a lot of challenges. And that meant he had to kick ass along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the fact that he doesn't have to 90% of the time is great, but that 10% or 5% or 1% of the time when he has to, he's going to act decisively and forcefully and with no mercy. So that what you see in his first on-screen episode in in, uh, The Invisible Hand a few episodes ago, you know, when he fights Spider-Man, there's no quarter given there, you know. It's fast, it's hard, and Spider-Man is down. Um, Tombstone owns him in that scene. Now, you know, yeah. there's the advantage that Spider-Man's not expecting this guy in a suit to be able to do much. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the shock value. But it doesn't change what Tombstone's able to do. And you see more of that here in this episode. Um, and again, from our point of view... Tombstone doesn't sit there and go, I'm evil, because he doesn't think he is evil. What he thinks he is is a businessman. Yeah. He's pragmatic. He's cold as a tombstone, get it? Um, and <laughs> he has a business to run. And you'll see this later in season two, where you contrast uh, the views of Doc Ock and Tombstone and uh, Silvermane. You know, Silvermane, it's a family, you know about loyalties it's about this it's about that doc ock it's a science you decide your approach you know the kind of thing it, it, and tombstone it's a business um and that's how he views himself it's a tough business he's in he's got no illusions about it but uh it's a business yeah he's great looking at goblin though here in contrast that i think the goblin either Sometimes I wonder: Does he realize he's evil, or does he not, or does he just not give a crap? <laughs> yeah, well, he's you know, Goblin is less about evil to me than about chaos. Um, and yet, at the same time, it's a business to him too. It's just that his chosen method is to keep people off their game. You know, if everyone else is missing a step because they're confused or frightened or um, thrown off or, or whatever, that works to his advantage. So it's a stylistic choice, um, but it's fundamentally not too different from Tombstone's point of view, because ultimately when we find out who Goblin really is, the guy that Goblin really is is also very much a businessman. Yeah. Um, and... So, but he's chosen another approach. Um, and you also got to feel that he's probably cutting loose on globulin green um, and free wearing that mask to do things and say things that he wouldn't do without the mask. Um, uh, but fundamentally, it's still about intelligence. It's still about this guy who is using every tool at his disposal, his humor, his weapons, his appearance, 
to keep everybody slightly off balance, off their game. Because as long as they're off balance and off their game, they'll win. Which brings me to my favorite line of the episode, and maybe my favorite line of the series. We all wear masks, Spider-Man, but which one is real? The one that hides your face or the one that is your face? And for the Goblin, I think that the guy he turns out to be is the actual mask. Well, you know, I, I want that to be ambiguous. I want that to, to be a question mark, um, just as it is for Peter. You know, Peter says that, the line that Goblin's responding to, as if he's not wearing a mask. You know, he, he, he uh, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but, but the line that he says about masks, I know, you know, what you're wearing behind that mask, he says with tremendous self-righteousness, you know, he's wearing a mask yeah. and he doesn't even notice the hypocrisy, you know? Um, now, of course, Peter's wearing a mask for a very, very different reason. Um, nevertheless, you know, is it true of Gavi? Is it true of Peter? You know, which is his true face? What he, when he's spidey and, and he's free to quip and crack wise and, run around or when he's Peter and he's got to hide who he is. And, uh, um, and I think it's a legit question for almost every, um, superhero who maintains a dual identity, whether it's Batman or Superman or, uh, Spider-Man or Green Goblin, you know, most villains don't maintain a dual identity, but you know, L Thompson Lincoln does. And so does Gobby. And so there's a lot of thematic stuff going on here with, with that, with masks, um, just as there is with father-son stuff between um, Norman and Harry, Jonah and John, and even, although this stretching it at least a little bit, but not a ton, even Tombstone and Hammerhead. Masks on Halloween. How they're pro- related in any way, yeah. genetically, but... But there's a relationship there that isn't really father-son, but definitely is Patron and, you know, consigliere. And and that's a relationship that has a sort of paternal father-son aspect to it, too. And all that thematic stuff is very intentional. And it all came together perfectly. Like you said, a theme of masks on Halloween. What better place right. to do this? And we open the show with a mask. You know, the whole show opens with the werewolf mask at the Halloween shop. Um, the and we'll talk about this next episode, really. But the um, the the meteor shower and John Jameson and and having that become the alien costume. Um. Were you intentionally um, referencing some of the pop culture stuff with with uh, with Spider Man Three, or was that based off of other works? Well, I, one thing to keep in mind is that although we saw Spider Man Three before uh, the series aired, we didn't see it before we went into production on season one. Okay. So um, we had seen by that time one and two. Okay. Um, but we hadn't seen three. Um, and so the short answer is, is, is no, it didn't, uh, 
Spider-Man 3 didn't influence us much because it couldn't have influenced us much. Um, just the timing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, what we were trying to do was, in, in essence, um, and this really is more of a conversation for next week, but still, um, what we were trying to do is uh, just with everything we were doing uh, with the villains was to try and not make it seem like there were 60 different ways that you could get superpowers or, you know, we wanted the origins to have uh, some kind of uh, internal cohesive logic to it that you don't have uh, the advantage of having when you're doing a comic book a month and all these different titles across all these an entire universe, we had the distinct advantage of hindsight. We could look at the comics and go, well, what was working? What was core to the idea? And what was something that someone just threw out there and it got stuck in there and then they were stuck with it? You know, that kind of notion. And so one of the things, obviously, the alien suit originally came from the original Secret Wars and Spider-Man being captured and sent by the Beyonder to another planet. And obviously we weren't going to do that. So oh, like, man. let's try and think of let's try and think of a cohesive way to bring this alien um, costume to Earth, this alien symbiote to Earth. And with the virtue of hindsight, knowing that we wanted to do um, you know simultaneously, we want to build Jonah's feelings about Spider-Man out of his feelings for his son, um, and so we knew we were going to do this uh, space shuttle little mini adventure that takes place in this episode. Um, and uh, we thought, well, it gets hit by a meteor. That's what puts it in danger. So what if there's a hitchhiker on that meteor that when it hits, transfers from the meteor to the shuttle? Um, and that led us to, I mean, obviously, to them discovering it at the end of this episode, this, this um, life form that's uh, uh, on the shuttle, which leads to what happens in the next four episodes, our final arc of the season, but also leads to the Captain, uh, the Colonel Jupiter stuff in season two, um, because when John touches that... Uh, uh, thing. Meteor. Symbiote. Picks up hitchhikers that were hitchhiking on the hitchhiker. You know, <laughs> these spores that were hitchhiking on the hitchhiker. And Don't touch don't touch it, John. You don't know where it's been. Right. Well, you know, when he sees it, what he thinks is it's an oil stain or something along those lines. He's not thinking it's a creature. He's thinking it's a smear of something. And so he goes to touch it and without thinking twice about it, and then this thing sort of leaps a little, not leaps, but moves, and it's like, holy shit, what the fuck was that? <laughs> um, you can bleep me out, right? Yeah, we, we, um, we can do that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, that allows him to, that furthers all our stories. And it was a nice, uh, you know, in a Halloween episode, it was a nice little scare to, to go off on. Um, had nothing to do with largely with the rest of the, the show thematically, but at least it, it uh, had that nice little scare factor. And of course, you know, for a lot of fans out there, they know what that means. 
and yeah. mm-hmm. um, and what that means is coming. So that's just fun. And it worked quite well. I mean, one thing, though, based on what you were saying earlier about message boards and uh, reactions and how trying to create something cohesive, I remember when this episode aired, people on the forums were saying, oh, they took that from the 90s series because John Jameson brought the symbiote back in the 90s series also, and it kind of hitched a ride with a, what was that thing called, Zach? The, the Prometheum uh, X. Uh, yeah, the Prometheum X. And I'm sitting there in this thinking, and... They probably didn't do that. I mean, if you're, this thing comes from space. John Jameson's an astronaut. How many other ways are you going to bring this thing down? To the point where I was surprised that the Spider-Man 3 didn't do that when they introduced John Jameson in the second movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that too, actually. I uh, um, I remember those reactions. And, and, and uh, I, I kind of viewed it as, and now knowing the hindsight of what I just found out, um, I was of the belief that it was if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know. I, well, and by the way, you're right. You know, I I haven't seen those episodes of the '90s show, so clearly I didn't get it from there. I can't speak for Kevin Hobbs. I don't know if he had seen that '90s stuff or not. You'd have to ask him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what was definitely true, and you can see it, if not there, it's certainly in other places. You know, if we found stuff that worked, we weren't shy about taken it you know if, if i thought there were elements of the origin from uh spider-man one that really worked we used it um and we weren't shy about it if i thought there were elements from the original we did coast stuff for the origin that worked we used that too and we combined it so you know if i had seen those 90s episodes where they did that the odds are i wouldn't have changed it for that reason, because, oh, it's, it was in the 90s show, so I can't use it. You know, if it was working there, I would have kept it. Um, mm-hmm. At least I like to think so. Again, one of the reasons I didn't watch that stuff is I didn't want it get all folded up in my head. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter was is that, you know, if it came from a comic from the 90s, if it came from a comic from 2007, if it came from a comic from 1969, uh, if it came from a movie or from the live-action Spider-Man show, if I thought it was a good idea, we used it. And we weren't shy about that. You know, it's a Marvel property. Marvel had given us permission to play in that corner of the Marvel universe. And uh, so a good idea was a good idea was a good idea. And although, me personally, I couldn't have taken it from the 90s show because I wasn't familiar with it. Um, If I had been familiar with it, I wouldn't have shied away from it. Um, and like I said, I wasn't the only person at the table, so someone else may have gotten the idea from the 90s show, and I don't remember specifically who brought up, you know, in the room who said, uh, well, let's do this for the symbiote, or who said, let's do that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, odds are that the basic idea of bringing it back on John's shuttle was something I came up with because it was part of the overall arc of the first season, and most of that I came up with um, before we even had a production team. But um, I'm not even 100% sure of that so long ago. Um, my, uh, my last question, because we obviously are getting towards the final, uh, final third of the season. Was it always, uh, were you guys intending on doing more? At what, at what point did you find out you were being renewed for season two? 
I don't remember. I mean, uh, we were hopeful, you know, and we knew we were taking a big risk specifically in this episode because, uh, um, you know, we, the way we were leaving the goblin reveal was such that if we didn't get a pickup for season two, then that would have been the last word on the subject, which is far from what we wanted it to be. Um, but I still think, you know, no one wants only one season any more than anyone wants only two seasons. But, sure. uh, but if we had had to leave it that way, we would have left it that way. But there are people who sort of said, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's no guarantee you'll have a season two. And so when we did this, um, and I, I can't say like when we posted it um, or when the animation came back, but certainly when we wrote it and recorded it, we still didn't know if we had a season two. Um, and I don't remember exactly where in the chain that pickup came. And one thing that happened is the pickup came and then Kids WB went out of business. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so even though we had a pickup for season two, we didn't know where we were going to air. Um, so I don't remember exactly where in the chain that either of those two pieces of information came out, or three really, because it was first, you got to pick up Kids WB, you won't be on there. Uh, and then finally, oh, you're going to be on Disney XD. Um, you know, those were three separate pieces of information that came at different times. And now it's been so long, I don't remember exactly where all three of those pieces of news fell. But I do know very clearly that when we wrote this episode and recorded it, we did not know that we had a second season pickup. And it was a risk. Because um, I'm very proud at the big reveal in episode 24. <laughs> or 26, I mean, um, about oh, yeah. Goblin. And I'm proud of the reveal here in episode nine, but the fact is, is that if we had never gotten beyond this in the Goblin story, it would have been pretty disappointing to not be able to, to, you know, throw that second punch, so to speak, you know. The idea was always that it was a combo, you know, uh, right jab, left hook. And we got to throw the right jab, but if we hadn't gotten that second season, we would not have gotten that left hook. So we were taking a risk uh, that paid off for us because we did get two seasons. But if we hadn't, we just would have been SOL. There's an alternate universe out there where the show didn't get a second season and people are asking you on Ask Greg and Twitter, was Harry really the Goblin? Was Harry really the Goblin? Me, probably among them. And you saying, spoiler request, no comment. <laughs> much, yeah. Well, it's been fun. This is a... I thought that we... I thought this was a great discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I I love having Greg on and give the insight for what their mindset was on re- on writing and record- and producing these episodes. So it's 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 always a pleasure to have you on, Greg. Indeed. Well, thanks. Um, now, once again, we're getting towards the end of the show. We have to give you your your a lot of time to pimp what you're working on. And your and your future projects. Well, uh, the main thing that I want to pimp uh, always are my novels. I hope that uh, if you enjoy, especially Spider-Man, if you enjoy some of my other shows like uh, Star Wars Rebels or uh, Gargoyles in particular or Young Justice, that you'll check out the two books I've written, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. They're the first two books in a nine-book series. They're both available now. You can get them at any bookstore. If they're not literally on the shelf the day you happen to walk in, you can go to the front desk and order them. 
also, of course, available on websites like Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anything like that. And in addition, we have made a full-cast, uh, unabridged radio play version of Reign of the Ghosts with um, 20 actors playing 30 roles. They include Josh Keaton, um, Edward Asner, who played Uncle Ben, Steve Bloom, who played the Green Goblin, um, and then also actors like Brent Spiner, Maureen Sirtis, Tom Adcox, who played the Tinkerer, um, and uh, Eric Lopez, who played uh, Molten Man, and many others. Um, like I said, uh, Vanessa Marshall, who is Mary Jane Watson, is in it. Um, so it's a great cast. Uh, we also have a full musical score, uh, almost four hours of music. I think we're like four minutes short of four hours of original music. Um, wow. By uh, Dynamic Music Partners, Michael McQuistian, uh, Chris Carter, and Lolita Ritmanis, who, of course, were the composers of shows like Young Justice and The Spectacular Spider-Man. All original music, fantastic stuff. Um, full sound effects, everything. And uh, that will be available soon, I hope, on Amazon, Audible, ACX, that kind of thing. At the moment, it's only available one place, which, as I mentioned earlier, is gumroad.com slash reign of the ghosts, but you can download it and purchase it there now uh, for a bargain price given everything that it comprises. So um, I I really hope people check that out. Then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, I've got two comic books at Marvel Comics. One is Star Wars Kanan. Uh, Issue 10 comes out tomorrow. It's available uh, both as an e-comic and also uh, comic book stores, etc. And then uh, Star Brand and Night Mask issue two came out last Wednesday. I'm saying this now, realizing that this show won't actually air for a while. <laughs> well, that's, so, that's okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll but, say uh, the dates. I mean, the 27th. Uh, but, uh, but I hope you guys will check out Star Brand and Night Mask uh, in particular if you like... Uh, um, Spectacular Spider-Man, I think you'll really like uh, Starbrand and Nightmask. The character Kenny Kong, as we mentioned earlier, is in Starbrand and Nightmask, making his Marvel Universe debut. Um, and uh, we may or may not. Yes, you, and, it, and it's got a lot of the sort of combination. I mean, Peter's a high school student, these guys are college students, but it's got a lot of that sort of college student as superhero stuff that I think was fun for high school students as superheroes in, uh, in Spectacular Spider-Man. So if you like Spec Spidey, I really do think you'll like Starbrand and Night Mask, and you should really check it out. Uh, when the first issue came out, I think we uh, did a big uh, post on our front page on spidey-dude.com. We'll continue to do that uh, just to uh, spread awareness. We'll also post our things on Facebook and Twitter. Defi- definitely. Um, Great, thank you. Absolutely, uh, and, we, and we, of course, appreciate you being on the show. Well, I have fun doing it. And we love having you. We really do. And uh, thank you again for coming on, and uh, we'll, hopefully we'll talk to you again very soon because um, next time things begin to get dark. Yeah, in more ways than one.
We all wear masks, Spider-Man. But which one is real? The one that hides your face or the one that is your face?